0: Well, Psalm 135 and 136, these are the Hallel uh, <clears throat> Psalms, the, uh, the Praise Psalms, and they are praising God for his mercy to Israel. Now, when were these Psalms written? It's difficult to say, as you know, my theory is that a lot of these Psalms were written originally by David, but under inspiration they were rewritten by various other people uh, at other times in Israel's history. And there's a lot of connection between uh, a lot of the phrases you get in these two psalms and the prophecies of Israel's restoration from Babylon that you have later on in, uh, in Isaiah and uh, in Jeremiah. And it seems to me, therefore, that <clears throat> at both those possible uh, times when they were written by David, maybe in the wilderness, and by Judah, who had returned from captivity, It seemed that God was hidden, and it seemed that God was not really working for them uh, as they had expected and as they thought he should. And yet the psalmist takes uh, comfort in the way that God has worked historically. And I have said this before, but I will repeat it, that I think in that you see the, the real measure of spiritual maturity. To praise God for how he worked for us, that is, for the people of God, historically, even though it might appear that in my life, at this particular moment, he is not doing that. By our baptism we entered into the body of Christ, into the Israel of God, and as such we are connected with all God's people, not only those who are now alive, scattered throughout the world geographically, but God's people over history. The Israel of old and therefore what God did for example at the Red Sea is for us to say wow praise him he did that for us now of course you are still left with the residual problem but he's not doing it for me in this life and we all are just human beings living in this world and, you know, it may be, for example, that, that God cured my father's cancer quite uh, miraculously, it seems, but he didn't cure maybe your father's cancer. And so it's okay for, for me to say to you, well, you should rejoice that God cured my dad's cancer. And, well, yeah, a bit tough for you, but, uh, you know, praise the Lord anyway. Yeah, that, that's a bit simplistic. Um, but all through these psalms, we have that sort of thing put before us, where men and women who were in a bad situation, not feeling God's activity for them, praise God for what he did for God's people historically. All the way through, there is this praising of God's name. It starts in verse 1, doesn't it? And it keeps going on. Keep on praising his name. Verse 13, your name, Yahweh endures forever, your renown, your reputation. Um, Yahweh throughout all generations so what is the name of God there's been all this foolish discussion about how it should be transliterated, spelt, pronounced and all that and I, I really think that's all totally irrelevant because when Moses asks uh, to, to know God and to have God reveal to him God reveals his name to him in Exodus 34, 4-6, to and what does he say? He doesn't stand in front of him, or the angel stand in front of him, uh, shouting out, Yahweh, Yahweh, or Jehovah, Jehovah. He says that he will declare his name, which is that he is a God who abounds in grace, in forgiveness, in justice, in judgment of sin, etc. He lists his characteristics. <clears throat> and over history, God has Acted according to his name, he has acted in line with those principles, and therefore, throughout history, we see that name revealed our biblical history and that 's the the whole point of bible history that 's why so much of the Bible is history because it is a declaration to us of god 's name and so the praise of his name, which is what this psalm is all about, is a praise of how he has acted throughout history and that's why there's all these references to what God did for Israel historically one thing that you you see of course in the hand of God in history in biblical history is his incredible grace and mercy to Israel to his people and we who to a man and to a woman have that niggling doubt as to whether really his grace is enough for me maybe enough for you but is it enough for me Is it really so that my sin, my laziness, my weakness, my lack of spiritual development uh, is really not going to be a barrier between me and the eternal place in the kingdom which I know I could have? And all this Bible history is assuring us that no, it is not going to be a barrier because look how gracious God was to Israel. And so, he starts off uh, verse 4, Yah has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. He puts Jacob and Israel there in parallel, because, of course, the allusion is always to the man Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And there again, in the very founder of Israel, as it were, as, as we know the name, you see an incredible story of grace. Jacob was not particularly a man of faith, he was extremely slow at learning, Uh, he was cynical towards God, he lacked faith, he lied, he he tried to do everything in his own strength. But God eventually, at the end of his very long life, humanly speaking, brought Jacob to himself. And so this is a reason for this ecstatic uh, praise. And the other reason for praise in verse four is that he has chosen Israel for his own possession, or for his peculiar treasure. The older versions say, and that's right; they were his peculiar treasure. And chasing through the usages of that uh, that term, his possession, his peculiar treasure, is pretty interesting because it all starts in Exodus 19, where God says to Israel, "If," and it's totally conditional. If, if you obey me, and if you have no other gods before me, and if you are obedient, then you will be my peculiar treasure. You will be my possession. <clears throat> but did they exclusively worship God? No, they didn't. Acts 7, they took out the start of their god Ramphan. Ezekiel 20 and 16, they were prostitutes against God from the day that he knew them. They carried all sorts of other gods of Egypt with them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and so forth. They did not fulfill that condition. And yet at the end of the wilderness journey, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses says, you have been chosen as God's peculiar treasure. You are my peculiar treasure. God says this a number of times. But they didn't fulfill the condition. He uh, he counted them as that anyway, although they did not fulfill in any way, really, the the condition. That if you are obedient, Exodus 19, and if you are exclusively mine, then you will be my peculiar treasure. And so you can understand why the psalmist is getting ecstatic with his uh, praise, that he has accepted Israel as his own peculiar treasure, because this is just pure grace. And this God is the same God. The God of Israel is our God. This is the whole point. And so you go on to verse 8. He struck the firstborn of Egypt. Now he's asking us to praise him because of his grace to Israel in that point. Now, in Psalm 136, this becomes a little bit more pointed. Uh, He talks about how His mercy or his grace, this chesed, this covenant mercy endures forever. And that's, as you know, 136, we just read it. That is the, uh, the second half of every verse in that psalm. When you come to verse 10, praise him who struck down the Egyptian firstborn because his grace endures forever. Well, we as uh, sort of 21st century liberal Europeans sort of raise our eyebrows and start to shake our head. How can we praise God for striking down the Egyptian firstborn? They were all somebody's sons, don't forget, uh, because his grace endures forever. I am sure that when God inspired these psalms and wanted Israel to praise him because his grace endures forever and therefore he, he killed the Egyptian firstborn, he knew that that would resonate somewhat strangely with us. The point is, all life is God's. This was the whole teaching of Leviticus that the blood must be poured out, and if you did not pour the blood out, then you would lose your life, your blood as it were, you'd be cut off from God's people. And the simple lesson from that is that all life is God's, even all animal life, certainly all human life, is God's. And it is not, therefore, for us to say that God did wrong. Um, And our life, as it were, is totally, as believers, the life of Christ. We died in baptism. And the life, as Paul says in Galatians 2, that I now live, I live in the faith of the Son of God who died, and gave his life for me. Uh, Colossians, we died, and our life is hid with Christ in God. The only life we have is his life, which is given by grace. And so, the killing of the firstborn was a sign of God's grace to Israel. As the firstborn, they would have become the leaders of families and society there in Egypt, And God knew, I guess, that they would do even worse to Israel. You have a a similar, uh, I guess, difficulty maybe, uh, in how Peter reasons about the the flood. In 2 Peter 2 verse 5, he says that the flood destroyed the world of Noah's day in order to save Noah. And so 1 Peter 3, 19-21, he was saved by that water, just as the water of baptism saves us. So the the killing of, of, you know, many people at the time of Noah was in order to save Noah. Now, I don't have any great uh, answer to all this, apart from to say that what is said here is ultimately true, even if it goes right against the grain of our uh, more humanistic kind of view, as I say, as 21st century uh, Europeans, that that, that how can you slay uh, babies and say that that's an example of my grace to my people? Well, God knows the end from the beginning, and we do not. <coughs> and so therefore, he's, he's saying quite clearly that, believe me, that was my grace to you. And in the bigger picture, I believe we can accept that. I mean, in Psalm 136, he says, verse 5, uh, Praise him who by understanding made the heavens, for his grace endures forever. The grace, the kesed, the covenant mercy, was to those within God's covenant. And all of creation was made, the heavens, you know, the heavenly bodies, the stars and everything, were made for us. And uh, as Paul says, all things are for your sakes, literally all things. Here it's defined in black and white that it is the heavens and all that God has created is for us. You know, why is the cosmos so huge from the standpoint of us standing here on earth trying to look up at it? um, The sheer scale of the whole thing is, I think, to emphasize his peculiar grace towards us, his colossal interest in us which comes back to what we've had there in 135, verse 4, praise him because he chose Israel for his own peculiar treasure. Now, I did try to understand a little bit more about this peculiar treasure. It seems uh, that the idea was that a king had all sorts of wealth and storehouses of gold and silver, but he had some favorite little special uh, trinket or whatever that was his peculiar treasure, his special treasure. And one uh, expositor of uh, the meaning of the Hebrew suggests that dynamically you could translate it in terms of a child saying, This is my very own. I have got a rabbit of my very own. This is my doll and not my sister's doll. This is my very own doll. Uh, And that is how God feels to us. This very personal sense of possession. So when we feel that somehow God is far away and is looking the other way, it seems, and is not listening to our prayers, and that what goes on in my life, plus minus, goes on in the life of the fellow next to me who doesn't believe, no, that that is maybe the impression we get. But the word of God must uh, be accepted as true, that we are his peculiar, his special treasure, his personal possession, and we have huge meaning to him. And he truly suffers with us and rejoices with us in all the ups and downs of human life. So, why then the scale of the cosmos? I think it's maybe just to to show the extent to which we are. His peculiar treasure, his special possession. And forgetting about the cosmos for one moment, just looking at life. uh, All the billions of people that are on the earth and have walked this earth and passed off it it seems with no hope of eternity why? well I accept these are very difficult questions but the answer that's given here seems to be in the direction of it's to show you the extent of God's grace to you why is it that God in his wisdom chose that there would not be universal salvation that not every single human being would be called to relationship with him nor would be ultimately saved well I think you could look at it in the same way as why, is, why are there all these uninhabited planets? Why is there such a rich uh, amount of, of animal life and plant life on the earth? I mean, God could have arranged the things so that there were far fewer species. Of course, he could have arranged it if he wanted. But I think that he, he did it in the way he did. The huge scale of life, uh, uh, the range of life the huge numbers of people who live and die without any possibility of salvation because he doesn't call them to it. Um, I think that that is because he wants to show us the extent of his grace to you. So that as you look out of your apartment window or wherever you live, uh, at the night and at the stars and <clears throat> as you think of all the people that surround you, as you stop maybe in a crowd of people, and you think, you know, am I really the only one here that God's kind of dealing with? Well, you don't know, maybe he's dealing with all sorts of other people in that crowd, I don't know, but however many people in that crowd he is dealing with, it's a minority, Uh, just as he chose Israel as his peculiar possession, and he was not in relationship with other nations, Um, but Israel were his particular and unique uh, treasure and possession. So this is why I think that there is this huge uh, emphasis here that the death of the Egyptians and the way that God destroyed all these other kings around them was in order to show his grace to Israel. And yet that people of Israel were so sort of ungrateful for what he did. Um, Verse 14 of 135, Yahweh will judge his people. That's out of Deuteronomy 32, but it's also quoted uh, in the New Testament, directly, about us, that his people, as they were historically Israel, are us today, and we shall be judged at the day of judgment. He will judge his people, and he will repent himself, or be sorry, some versions say, for his servants. So, of course, all this is poetry, and... The rhyme is not in the uh, assonance of the, of the words and the similar sound, but in the connection of ideas. So Yahweh will judge his people. Uh, he will be sorry or will uh, repent, will think again, that is parallel with judge, uh, for his servants, parallel with his people. So this again is something that makes the psalmist ecstatic with praise and get his guitar out or whatever he he had uh, bang the drums that God's judgment of his people and that is us because it's quoted in the New Testament about our final judgment uh, his judgment is in fact a being sorry for us a thinking again a repenting as the older English versions say about us Um, that he will rethink The whole thing that, you know, we should die. We are not worthy of of salvation. And yet in his pity and in his sorrow for us, he will accept us. And this is what judgment is all about. God being sorry for his servants. Now, if we said nothing more, uh, that is a a thought you can really take away with you. Because we all tend to fear the idea of judgment. Judgment. Whereas David earnestly looked forward to it. He keeps looking forward to it. The Psalms look forward to judgment uh, with joy. Because judgment, this final meeting with God, is, in that sense, God being sorry for us. God uh, thinking again. God repenting concerning us because of his compassion. Especially when you realize that Israel were so uh, rebellious against God. Now... <clears throat> All things, as I say, are for our sakes, the creation of the sun to rule by day, 136 verse 8, and the moon and stars by night, verse 9, this is all his grace toward us. And I keep emphasizing that this is not just about Israel, this is about us who are his people, because 135, 14, Yahweh will judge his people, this is quoted in the New Testament and Hebrews about us and our judgment. Um, And 136, verse 23, who remembered us in our lower state. This is not just some Jewish person, maybe Hezekiah, maybe uh, David, maybe Isaiah, uh, talking about how God has remembered them, but this is about us. Now, Mary quotes that when she thanks God for making her pregnant with the Lord Jesus, and she felt that that verse spoke to her. And so it is with us that all these verses speak to us. This is not just history, this is not just the historical Israel. This is each of us now <clears throat> going on uh, going uh, going back from there, um, if God is so wonderfully gracious, so that we should praise him with all that we have, then don't turn to any other god don't have any other passion in your life, be it a career, be it a relationship, be it a hobby all these things. I know you can say, ah, oh, yeah, but I do all that for God. It's just my way of serving him. Well, that may be uh, admissible, as it were, um, to some extent, but the point is that these things are the idols of the nations. And 15 to 18 is very clear that, look, if, if this Yahweh, this God of ours is so wonderful, don't turn to idols. Because verse 16, they have mouths but they can't speak, they have eyes but they can't see now that is quoted or alluded to by the Lord Jesus when he talks about the the blindness and the deafness of Israel in Mark 8 where he says you have got mouths but you can't speak you have got eyes but you can't see you've got ears but you can't hear he doesn't actually say you've got mouths but can't speak but he says that you have got eyes but you can't see you have ears but you can't hear and he's saying that you people who are Listening to me who've come into encounter with me but don't respond, you are just like idols. You have ears but you can't hear. You have got uh, eyes but you can't see. Verse 18 is so powerful. Those who make them become like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. So then, this is what we see in this world. People with eyes, ears and mouths that they're not using they are really just blocks of stone walking around because they choose to be like that whereas the eyes of our understanding to use Paul's term should be enlightened so in the light of such a wonderful God let's search our lives for idols because otherwise we become like them if the passion of your life is the rebuilding of your house the remodeling of it or your apartment or whatever it might be that's got no eyes, ears, mouths, and you become like it. And you become like all these dumb, blind people walking around, sort of somehow in a, in a trance, in a, in a dream. Uh, Arthur Kersler's novel, The Sleepwalkers, is a very, a very powerful description of human society. Um, and that is really how, how it is. It's people sleepwalking. People who are apparently alive, but actually are not really seeing, speaking, or or listening. And this is why coming to Christ and accepting Yahweh as our unique and only God, this is what makes you alive. That suddenly you see life in a different way. That suddenly everything has this meaning uh, in the light of the revelation that he's given to us. So then... I will close just with uh, one final observation. It goes back to the beginning of Psalm 135, in verse 2, where those who are called to praise God are those who stand or who serve in the house of Yahweh and in the courts of the temple. Now, these were the Levites. This was not all Israel. These are those who stood in service. The Hebrew idea of standing uh, before God is very much the idea of serving him. And at the end of 135, the whole house of Israel, verse 19, are asked to also praise him. And the house of Israel is paralleled with the house of Aaron, the house of Levi, verse 20, that everyone who fears Yahweh should do this. And this is one of a number of indications that it was God's intention that Israel were to develop into an entire nation of priests. That it was not just to be left to the specialists, to those amongst the people of God who were particularly turned on to this or felt called to it, but that they were to all be like this. Now, Exodus 19, verse 6, uh, it speaks about Israel as being a nation of priests uh, and kings, uh, a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And that is quoted, 1 Peter 2, 5, Revelation 1, 6, 5, 9 and 10, um, about us that this is true of us. And we started off by saying that in Exodus 19, in the same passage, God says to them that if you are obedient, then you will be my peculiar treasure. So all this starts to speak absolutely directly to every one of us. That this is not just for those within the Ecclesia who feel, within the people of God, within Israel, who are sort of cut out for this, who feel into all that stuff. Uh, This is for every one of us.